Hey, podcast listeners. I'm excited to share that you can now support local winemakers by shopping for wine on Somli.com, where you can find over 450 Texas wineries and 80 wines available for purchase direct from each winery. If you're a Texas winery, claim your page to add photos, team members, and additional information about your winery for free. If you're a wine lover, join me in creating a profile at Somli.com to give your favorite Texas wineries a great review. Texas Hill Country Wineries invite you to drink it all in with the 2022 Texas Wine Month Passport. This self-guided tour is your passport to exploring over 40 wineries in the Texas Hill Country between October 1st and 31st. As a passport holder, you can visit up to four wineries per day for all 31 days, plus receive exclusive discounts on bottle purchases. Buy your tickets now at texaswinetrail.com and head for the hills all month of October. Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 48. Today, you'll hear my interview with Kyle Frazier. He's the legislative advocate, aka lobbyist, for the Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association. He'll share how TWIGA goes about developing legislative priorities and working on behalf of its members. There's plenty of Texas wine news. And then finally, at the end of the show, I'll share a few highlights from my recent road trip to visit vineyards in the Texas High Plains. Whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. Wine writer Lana Bordelot features two Texas wineries in her recent Forbes article, Wines for Your Sunday Barbecue. Under the heading for a hearty grill, she includes the Adega Vino Cuvée Carinho, which means blend of affection. From 2019, it's from the Texas High Plains, a blend of Merlot and Tempranillo. She says this is a smooth operator that goes down easy with plush, plummy fruits, silky tannins. It's juicy and concentrated with the freshness of fruit that keeps it from being dense. She also lists the Texas Heritage Vineyard Alicante Boucher from Leahy Vineyard in 2017, also from the High Plains. She says this is a dynamic example that demonstrates how Texas does really well with Portuguese varieties. Rolling right out of the glass is smoky bacon, a meaty iodine, and some earthy bramble, all pleasingly followed onto the palate. So deep and sexy, it makes me miss eating meat. Well, we talk a lot about new wineries on this podcast, but there's a major expansion underway for an existing winery. Longhorn Cellars announced recently that work has begun on a new 13,000-square-foot production facility, barrel room, wine library, and restaurant. Longhorn Cellars is in Fredericksburg at 290 near Fredericksburg Trade Days. So very exciting times at Longhorn Cellars. And congratulations to Nikila and Greg of Colossi Cellars, who are the proud new owners of the first optical grape sorter in Texas. According to a press release, this equipment enables Colossi Cellars to use the perfect red grapes for winemaking. It does that by scanning all of the harvested material and empowering the winemaker to choose the desired ripeness and shape and size of grapes to be used for winemaking. It also eliminates all of the MOG, the material other than grapes. So the speed and level of control that this equipment provides is unprecedented in Texas winemaking. And the press release says this will play a central role in Colossi Cellars continuing to raise the bar for Texas wine quality. If you check out the Colossi Cellars Instagram page, they've got a reel showing this impressive and expensive piece of equipment in action. It's optically sorting some of the newly harvested Sagrantino. Very cool. The food writers at the Dallas Morning News have a weekly column where they write about the best things they ate that week. Recently, food editor Sarah Blaskovich listed the Coleman Cellars Herbed Almonds as her best bite of the week. Not only that, she said that Coleman actually has an almond club where you can have these delicious house-made almonds delivered to your doorstep. The almonds are made with a spice blend that's purchased in Aix-en-Provence, which you may remember is the hometown of Coleman winemaker Benedict Rhine. 
And speaking of the Dallas Morning News, I was pleased to be invited to appear on their podcast, Eat, Drink, DFW, to talk about Texas wine. I shared some ideas for visiting wineries around DFW, and they titled the podcast, Texas Wine Industry is Bigger and Better Than Ever. So be sure to check that out. I'm hoping to get invited back regularly to talk about Texas wine. I saw a new wine trail promoted on Facebook recently, and it's the Texas High Plains Wine Trail. There are currently 11 members listed on the website, and one of the members, Kirk Williams, told me that with the exception of one of their members, all of them are primarily growers. He said, as with many emerging grape and wine regions, the growers have decided to sell some of their grapes directly. Some of this is economics, and some of it has to do with the need to do something with excess fruit. He says, we think people in the High Plains deserve to have tasting rooms. Increasing awareness of our industry and increasing traffic to our tasting rooms was the main motivation. All of the tasting rooms on the High Plains were invited, and they would welcome more members. Stay tuned to the end of this podcast to hear where I went during my recent trip to the Texas High Plains. Next time I go, I'll be sure to consult this list. And here are a few events that are on my radar. Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association Grape Camp is a program that focuses on the needs of Texas grape growers. The education session for their Grape Camp conference cover viticultural challenges like water, drought, heat, and labor, plus unique grape and wine sensory education. This year's event will be November 2nd through 4th in Dripping Springs, and you can register now. Part of that program is a new course called Wine and Grape 101, and if you're new to running a winery or vineyard or you're interested in doing those things, this one is designed specifically for you. It's an introduction to viticulture and enology, and it can help point you in the right direction as you're getting started in the wine and grape industry. That's on November 2nd. And we're coming up on a couple of great events in September. Vinovium will be hosting the Texas Wine Jam in Johnson City on September 4th. It's a Texas wine and music festival with 15 wineries, three bands, and proceeds go to two great causes. It looks like an epic event, so get your tickets ASAP and follow TX Wine Jam on Instagram for the latest. Texas Fine Wine also has two great events coming up, the annual Texas Fine Wine Sunset Cruise on Lake Austin, which is September the 9th, and then later that month, to kick off Texas Wine Month, which is in October, they're hosting a September 30th dinner at Spicewood Vineyards. Next, I've got some complimentary tasting passes for the first listeners who reach out and request them. These are passes to both Lost Draw Cellars and William Chris Vineyards. I've got two passes for each for their select or winemakers tasting. You can use them anytime during the month of September. So email me at texaswinepod at gmail.com and I'll let you know how to claim those. Find links to register for events and links to all these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. There are a couple things that you can do for me today that are free and help grow the podcast. One is to follow Texas Wine Pod on social media, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, and share and comment when you see a post. The next is to sign up for the very occasional podcast newsletter in which I share a few behind-the-scenes thoughts, photos, events, and so forth. To sign up for the podcast newsletter, visit thisistexaswine.com, then click Newsletter Sign Up. Now on to our interview Kyle Frazier is the legislative advocate for the Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association. In this role, he represents TWIGA as an advocate for legislation and regulatory action that benefits the Texas wine industry. In other words, he's a lobbyist. I was really interested to learn how TWIGA determines which priorities to pursue and how TWIGA works to represent its members in state and federal matters. Lately, these topics have included the labeling law changes issues around dicamba, and various property rights issues. Here's our conversation. How, how does one get involved in being an advocate for the Texas wine industry? So uh, my background, I started lobbying in 1990 um, and went to work for the wholesale beer distributors, which is the middle tier of the beer industry, and worked for them for a number of years, uh, about nine years, uh, and then I left them <clears throat> and uh, went on my own. 
uh, became an independent uh, uh, contractor and started representing a variety of different interests uh, and represented uh, foreign importers, uh, Anheuser-Busch, uh, Miller Brewing Company, uh, among other um, alcohol trade industry folks. Um, and several of those positions, uh, we, we accomplished what we needed to accomplish. And so uh, they approached me, they being the Texas Wine and Grape Growers approached me. Um, they had never had a, a paid advocate before. And so they approached me and this was 09 or 10, honestly, I don't remember, right around that period of time, they approached me to come to work for them. Um, and uh, I, it uh, obviously industry was much smaller back then. I thought it was a really good opportunity to, to kind of, uh, you know, start working with a, a young industry in the very beginning. And uh, it's been fun ever since. I'm sure some of the issues are similar as the beer industry, because it's under the general category or umbrella of alcohol. But um, what are some of the specific items that you have worked on um, the past decade um, that have been either successfully resolved or things that are um, continuing on your plate? Well, some of them, uh, that's a, I mean, it's a really good question. And, and the three-tier system, which is the, I know you're familiar with it, which is the alcohol system that, the, that, that we live under here in Texas. Uh, and uh, it is, uh, it, it's, it's not unique to Texas. Most states have some sort of a three-tier system. Um, uh, there are 18 control states where the alcohol is still controlled by the, by the, the local state government. Uh, but in most states, there is a three-tier system or some version of that. Texas is no different. Texas has a very uh, strict, well-defined three-tier system uh, that is uh, mainly controlled by the middle tier uh, and the package store industry. Uh, and I don't think they would disagree with that. Um, and uh, so there's not a lot of uh, cross-tier success stories where people work outside or are able to work outside of their very narrow scope of practice. Um, uh, typically, manufacturers can only sell to wholesalers. Uh, wholesalers can only sell to retailers, and so on. Retailers can only sell to the public, and and, and, and that's pretty much what the uh, what the law is for the most part, except when it comes to wine. Wine is the is the unicorn uh, in this system, as it is in several other states. And again, Texas is not the only one that does this. Although I would argue that Texas has probably one of the most diverse. Uh, it allows the, the biggest uh, set of, of, of options as far as how you want to structure your business. Uh, the Texas law is, is very uh, liberal when it comes to allowing different business models to, to have a chance at success. And, and that is unique, um, and it's unique certainly in Texas. Uh, if you look at the other small manufacturers, the other group, the, the, like the breweries or the, uh, the small distillers, uh, most of them point at the wine industry and say, gosh, we want to be like those guys when we grow up. And so uh, uh, that has allowed our, uh, our industry, uh, the, the Texas wine industry, to really flourish over the last 20 years. If you look at the number of wineries uh, around 1999, before most of these laws were passed, uh, I think there were about 30 or so wineries in Texas at that point, 1999. Uh, now, you know, when I checked last month, uh, we had over 700 and, I don't know, something like 770 some odd permits. Now, obviously, that's not, uh, there's some duplication there, but but still, that's a lot of wineries. And, and we're growing at a fairly astronomical rate. And it's all because we have a really, really good set of laws. Um, because we have a really good set of laws, uh, there are other segments in the industry that would like to see some of those uh, privileges curtailed. Uh, and so uh, on a regular basis, we have to defend uh, what we uh, have accomplished or what we, what, what we, uh, the, the rights and privileges that we have. Um, and that, uh, uh, it's, it's kind of like, a, you know, if you're a physician, your number one rule is do no harm. And in this industry, the number one rule is don't let any harm occur to us. Uh, sure. The worst thing that could happen is if some uh, if something some law passed uh, that suddenly said that uh, uh, some of the privileges that, that some of these uh, some of these wineries have uh, was curtailed in some fashion. Can you give me an example of, of what that might look like for um, a winery and how it's different than let's say a distillery? 
Yeah, as, a, as an example, we can, uh, we can ship through a common carrier, not postal service, but, but paid common carriers. We can ship uh, to anybody uh, that uh, wants to purchase wine uh, at our winery or through the, uh, through the website. Uh, and that's a, a very common practice. Lots of wineries uh, participate in that. Most of them, most of our wineries have wine clubs, uh, which entails uh, the ability to ship typically on a regular basis. Uh, and uh, distillers can't do that. And brewers can't do that. And that's not unusual across the United States, in fact. Uh, wineries typically, not always, but typically, uh, wineries are the ones that, uh, that have a, a, that, that privilege. And that's that's a substantial benefit, obviously, to those folks who, who choose to uh, uh, incorporate that into their business model. And it's a, it's a big deal. Um, package stores uh, gave up the ability to ship outside of the county many years ago. Uh, and, and in my personal opinion, I think they, they probably regret that. But uh, because they don't do that, um, that gives uh, wineries the ability to ship all, all over the state uh, and to reciprocal states around the United States. Just like we have wine that comes into California or in from California or Washington or Oregon, uh, we're allowed to ship to other states as well. And that's a it's a it's a huge huge benefit in the industry. Um, that's probably a good example. You know, something else uh, that is a detriment. Uh, something we've had to deal with and have had not had success in. Uh, rectifying is uh, a limit on how much wine can be sold directly to consumers. Uh, there is uh, what we refer to as the 35,000 gallon limit, which is about 14,000 some odd cases, 14,700 cases approximately. Uh, and you are limited by statute as to uh, that number, the amount of, of, of wine you can sell directly to consumers. Um, now, if you work through the <clears throat> if you work through the three tier system, you can sell as much as you want to retail outlets. That's it's that doesn't uh, that does not impact it. But if your wine club and as far as folks coming into the winery, uh, that is limited at thirty five thousand gallons. Uh, we have attempted on numerous occasions to to change that, uh, and both the package stores and certain members of the uh, wholesale tier uh, see that as a uh, as a detriment to them, and so they fight us on it uh, uh, pretty strenuously, um, and and that is something that uh, you know that I would like to see. I would like to have some success on, but it's been uh, it's been difficult. Other than that, we don't have a tremendous number of, of impediments. One of the things that we got passed a number of years ago was the, the festival law, uh, which allows uh, especially our small wineries to go and participate at local festivals and farmers markets and things of this nature. And for those that don't have extensive uh, advertising budgets and things of that nature, then, then this allows them to get out in the community and, and, and build up a, a client base through these types of, of, uh, of events. And now that's very popular, with uh, especially with a lot of our smaller folks. Uh, though that one has been important. We uh, modernized the, the labeling practice, so that would became a little more streamlined. And those are some of the ones uh, we... Uh, have focused on uh, uh, getting some uh, uh, budget increases for AgriLife Extension over at A&M, for the uh, wine program out at Texas Tech, and also the wine program, Enology program at Gracing College. So, so we've worked on that uh, over the last 10, 15 years uh, to make sure that those institutions get uh, uh, dollars that they need to continue their programs, uh, and, uh, and so far uh, had success making sure that those things continue. Oh, good. I want to talk a little bit about the budget surplus later, and maybe you have some ideas about those funds. But I want to start and talk about the Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association and the legislative committee and how that group is formed and how that group decides on priorities. And so how, how do you get your marching orders, basically? Well, the uh, we've had a we've 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 had a legislative committee since since I've worked for the for the for the industry. So we've always had uh, a legislative committee. Typically, it is formed uh, by the president, whoever the president is at the time. 
I I don't I can't remember a a, a, a a situation where somebody who wanted on the legislative committee wasn't able to get on there. So it is uh, the president forms it, but usually uh, you know they they look at the industry and try to get some big folks on there, some little folks on there, some mid-sized folks on there, and then typically they'll be contacted by uh, other folks who might want to be uh, get involved for the first time, and so that they'll and and the legislative committee is a good place to do that because we. We kind of work through the issues. Uh, we talk about what's happening in the industry, uh, uh, both from uh, an internal aspect, you know, what's working and what's not working, but also with the, out- the outside, what's happening in other segments in the industry that could impact uh, the, the wine business. And uh, this is discussed uh, ad nauseum uh, during the interim Um Uh, Typically, uh, there are, we also get input from our membership as to problems they're having out in the marketplace. Uh, Again, something that's working or something that's not working. Is this something that we can do out at TABC and and handle through a regulatory fashion? Or is it statutory that we're actually going to have to change a law? Uh, One of the things we're going to work on this next session uh, is... uh, the, when we went through sunset process and they condensed all the various uh, permits that a, a winery has to get, they left one off uh, dealing with outside storage. It was not intentional. It was just it was just a mistake. So that's one of the things uh, that we're going to try to rectify this next session. Uh, it's more of a, a bookkeeping deal, but it's it's. It's, it still needs to be fixed, and, and so that's, that's the kind of thing that comes up uh, that we try to, to rectify. It's, you know, it shouldn't have any opposition from anybody, but it's just something that needs to be done and, and taken care of so that the, uh, the system's a little more streamlined, a little more straightforward. But it's, uh, uh, that we'll, we'll have these discussions. Um, typically, uh, the legislative committee comes up with a, a list of, of anywhere from three to 10 or 15 issues that are importance, various level of importance, uh, we uh, kind of give it to the board uh, to rank. Uh, obviously, you can't do everything. Uh, you know, a typical legislative session has approximately 7,000 uh, bills and resolutions that are introduced, and we've got only 140 days, actually less than 140 days to deal with that. So it's a very, very small number of bills even non-controversial bills actually get considered and work through the process. So you got to prioritize. What are the three most important or four most important uh, issues that we want to try to deal with? Uh, and the board decides that and kind of ranks it in order. Uh, and uh, then typically we'll you know send that information uh, information out to the membership, uh, try to get some feedback there. All of this is occurring. Um, during the interim, we try to have our agenda set uh, by, uh, let's say, July of this summer before the legislative session starts. Uh, and that gives us time to get drafting. If there are bills that have to be drafted and, and filed, it gives us time to get the drafting done. Find, go ahead and start finding authors for some of those bills. Uh, and so when the session starts, we're ready to go. So that's typically how it works. And the Texas legislature only meets every other year for session. So odd numbered odd numbered years for 140 days. Okay. And then how do you go about determining who you want to work with if you do need to introduce a bill? Well, that's a good question too. As an example, um, for many years, uh, probably our biggest champion in the Texas Senate was uh, Senator Jane Nelson. And I think you were at her uh, when she gave her little swang song speech yes. to us at the at the conference last year. Yep. Uh, yeah, Senator Nelson has always been a huge supporter of the industry, and she enjoyed uh, working on our issues. And so oftentimes, uh, she kind of got... Uh, uh, first refusal. I would go to her, and of course, she was also chairman of, of Senate Finance, which means she had uh, a lot of stuff going on. And she was a very accomplished legislator, so she always had a full agenda. And but but I would always kind of give her, uh, you know, uh, first refusal uh, to see if she, there was something that was of interest to her and her staff that she wanted to carry. Uh, and if she did, then obviously she got to do that. Um, Typically, you you get a a senator and a house member to carry your bill to carry uh, uh, joint bills like bills, and you try to work both of them through the system just in case something happens. Um, but uh, uh, when Senator Nelson had her name on something, she liked the final version to have. 
to still have her name on it. So usually, uh, if Senator Nelson's name on it, means it was a Senate bill that was going to pass and, and that she would have last say, which was fine with us. Uh, not, a, not a better signature to have on your, your bill than Senator Nelson's. Uh, but uh, over in the House, there are a number of, of, of House members who have been very supportive over the industry. Uh, 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 John Kimple has carried a number of bills for the uh, for the industry very successfully. Um, and, and, and Drew Springer, when he was in the House, uh, was very helpful uh, as, a, as a member and a big supporter of the industry. Of course, he's over in the Senate now. We're going to be depending on him quite a bit with uh, Senator Nelson's retirement. So we're very lucky. We've, we've always had a, a number of, of very supportive uh, House and Senate members who are willing to, uh, you know, to carry legislation for us. Typically, our stuff is not uh, uh, controversial for the most part. Um, and it's uh, and so it's it's not a particularly heavy lift, uh, but it, it just with the the volume that these guys have to deal with, uh, it, it does require a lot of work. And it, and passing a bill, even a non-controversial bill, is extraordinarily difficult. Usually, out of the seven thousand bills and resolution that are filed, about. 13, 14 percent actually get signed by the governor. So it's a, a very small percentage. Oh, wow. Will it be announced what the legislative priorities are going into the new legislature or will we just watch the news? How will we find out either as TWIGA members or as just the general public? Yeah, the uh, it should be up on, I don't know if it's up on the website yet, but it will be up on the website very soon. Uh, we, uh, uh, we've, we've come up with our uh, agenda. It's pretty straightforward. Some of these issues you're very much aware of, obviously, um, that, we, that you've talked to other folks about. Uh, and, and, and the stuff that we're working on, we've been pretty above board on. Everyone, there, there are some things, obviously, that you work on that, that you kind of have to hold close to your vest until you get a little more into the session. But in this case, most of our stuff is, is pretty straightforward. Research dollars be one example. Uh, doing something about herbicide drift is another example. I mentioned the, the all-site storage permit would be another example. All of those are issues uh, that we've been uh, you know, talking about at, at length. Uh, and we'll be working on this next session. Uh, but I would expect that to most of that to be posted on the website, uh, if it's not already, pretty soon. Okay. Well, I can only imagine that it's a little bit like herding cats to get members of the Texas wine industry to agree on any number of topics. Some of them you've mentioned, and I'm sure there are others. Um, one that came up in the last legislative session was the, the compromise over Texas wine labeling. How did Twiga play a part in that? And can you give me just a little historical background on that particular topic? Sure. Um, so the the uh, interest in uh, the and you're referring to the hundred what I refer to as a hundred percent question uh, and uh, the industry. Uh, the association, trade association, took a stance uh, several sessions ago to maintain current status quo as far as rec- um, label requirements um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, the uh, there was a certain uh, number of uh, folks in the wine industry uh, who disagreed with that um, and wanted uh, if you're going to have Texas on the label, then you had to have 100% Texas fruit. Um, they filed legislation to accomplish that. Uh, the in, in the trade association, TWIGA, uh, decided that uh, that was not in the industry's best interest, and so we fought that and killed it the first session. Um, came up again in the next session. We killed it again. Uh, all this time in between sessions, there was discussions going on trying to reach some type of compromise, uh, and a lot of discussions going on to reach some type of compromise. Um, and they just they just weren't able to do it, and so uh, with two uh, failures um, under their belt, uh, they uh, and and from the from Twiga's standpoint, I will say that because uh, that type of inter-industry uh, fighting takes a lot out of your effort. I mean, you really have to focus a lot of that, so you have to kind of put everything else you might want to accomplish on the back burner. Uh, plus, I can tell you that legislators, this is not the first time. These, these, these fights occur within the industries all the time. And legislators do not want to referee intramural fights. That's not what they're there for. You know, what they want to tell you is go home, 
clean up your own house, figure out your own stuff, then come back to us and tell us, you know, because they don't know, they don't know the industry. They don't know the ins and outs, the intricacies of all of this. They're insurance people or real estate people or bankers or what farmers or whatever they do for a living. So, and that's true. These, these, these fights uh, in on the healthcare side, we, we call it scope of practice fights. Uh, but it's all about, uh, you know, one side wanting to do a little bit more than what the other side wants to do within the same industry. And so uh, after, a, a, I would say, a fairly uh, direct suggestion by a variety of, of elected officials, you know, go home and take care of this on your own, they did. They finally got together and they reached a compromise, which I thought was a, a good compromise. And we... Uh, you know, all saying kumbaya and passed it unanimously without opposition. Um, unfortunately, and, and you talk to enough of our folks, we have lots and lots of type A personalities, people who have been successful at some other business uh, and are and they're all pretty certain they know exactly how to run this business, even if everybody says they should do it different. So, uh, and, and, and there's lots of personalities and all that came into play. And uh, it just it just took a while to you know to get everybody uh, on the same page and and it seemed to uh, it seems to be working just fine and uh, so ho- hopefully we won't have too many of those because it really does derail everything else uh, that you might be trying to do for the industry um, and it it, uh, it slows everything else down and, and 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 as I said amongst the the elected membership the uh, membership of the House and the Senate. That's not the kind of discussions they want to have. It doesn't, it's not, uh, I mean, how do you pick between your friends? You know, you don't want to pick between your friends. You, you want your friends to go figure this out and then come back and talk to me when you've reached an agreement. And so that's how it, that's how it got fixed, and, and it just took a while to get there. I saw a letter that uh, Roxanne Meyer uh, wrote when she was president of Twiga about the issue of um, herbicide drift. And that's out on your website now at the Twiga advocacy page. Can you tell me a little bit about Twiga's position and the ongoing discussion around um, dicamba and herbicide drift? Yeah. So um, I have uh, attempted to become a you know armchair expert on on dicamba and herbicide drift, and and uh, and it's obviously a very complicated uh, issue. The, uh, the 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 problem and 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 I know I know you've had a number of discussions about this, so I don't want to go too far off into the weeds, as it were. Um, but we've got you know five or six thousand acres of grapes in the high plains in Terry County that is surrounded by a million acres of cotton, all of which are using or most of which are using this uh, this uh, this herbicide resistant seed uh, that was developed in the last oh six or eight years. Dicamba itself is. As a as a herbicide, it's been around for a long time, uh, in various versions of it, various chemical versions of it. Uh, but it didn't really become a problem until these folks, the Monsanto folks, uh, developed a uh, a seed, uh, and they developed a cotton seed and a uh, oh uh, soybean. Sorry, yeah, so I'm sorry, soybean seed that was resistant to the herbicide. And once that happened, all bets were off because then you could just spray, uh, you know, at will. Um, and it's uh, the volatization of the, uh, the of the product, uh, which they they say they being the chemical company say that they have perfected that it's not it's no longer volatile, no longer drifts. And if you look at the thirty seven page uh, label instruction label on the chemical. Um, there are very, very specific instructions about how to make use of this product. Uh, you know, certain times of the day and certain weather conditions and so on, things like that. And I'm guessing if you followed those instructions exactly, perhaps it wouldn't. But if you, and I know you have, spending time on the high plains, the thought that the wind never blows on the high plains when you could actually use this product... That that time doesn't exist. Uh, the wind is always blowing up there, and it's always hot. And so, what you have is a, is a product that volatilizes and then uh, and then drifts uh, long long distances. Uh, I've heard I've seen studies as long as you know thirty or forty miles, <clears throat> and it uh, and it does severe damage to broadleaf plants, grapes included. 
Um, if, uh, if something isn't done, um, then it, uh, you know, I, I, I wonder uh, how successful our, uh, our grape growers will, you know, continue to be up there. Um, plus, it, it, you know, we need uh, more grape growers, not fewer grape growers in the, in the High Plains and everywhere else. Uh, but trying to get a you know sixty year old cotton farmer to plow under four hundred acres of cotton and plant uh, grapes in and of itself is is a difficult argument to convince him of. But beyond that, if this cotton farmer knows that the dicamba that he's using could kill his, the these these young plants that he just planted, why in the world would he do that? Well, he's not likely to. So it's a it, it's a it is a severe problem. Um, We've, uh, uh, you know, we've got some really, really good farmers up there who are figuring out ways to, to, you know, slowly but surely survive. Uh, but that's all they're doing is, and some of them are not even surviving. And that coupled with a drought, I know you've probably heard our, our yields are down something in the 50% neighborhood uh, this year, uh, coupled with uh, the dicamba problem and, and, and the drought problem. Uh, so it's going to be a, you know, a, a thin grape year. And we don't have enough grapes as it is. For the, for the number of wineries that we have, we need approximately 15,000 acres of grapes in the ground. And obviously, we're nowhere near that. Um, so uh, we need to, um, we have been working at bringing this to the attention of uh, legislators. Um, there are some folks that uh, I think want to try to do something to help us. Uh, we had a good good meetings with uh, uh, the chairman of House Agriculture. Uh, we had a good meeting with uh, uh, Senator Perry, chairman of, of uh, Senate Agriculture. Uh, we've got a meeting coming up, uh, hearing coming up um, in uh, later uh, no in September in the House Licensing Committee to talk about this uh, a little bit. And so we're we're getting the issue discussed, which is that in and of itself has been very difficult. Uh, the folks who who don't want us to talk about this uh, are immensely powerful. You've got the cotton growers and the chemical council, the the, the, the industry that that produces this the, these products, um, who just assume we not talk about these issues, and so um, that makes it really really challenging. And it's not that anybody's doing anything they're not supposed to be doing. Uh, it's just that everybody is representing their own interests. Uh, which is perfectly understandable. These these cotton farmers have, you know, millions of dollars invested in their in their equipment and their cotton farms, um, and uh, uh, and they want to protect what's there. And if uh, we were on the reverse side, and and uh, uh, we would probably be doing the same thing. But uh, I, and I think it's uh, I think it's come down to uh, honestly, this is kind of the way I look at it. It's a property rights issue. Certainly, if I walked uh, into your yard and and you know took a blowtorch to your prize roses, uh, you would be upset and you would probably call the police on me. And and to me, this is no different. Uh, you know, you should be able to do what you want to on your own property as long as it doesn't impact your neighbor. And uh, and that's uh, that's uh, the rule and, and that's the law. And, and, uh, uh, and these folks, um, you know, need to, uh, everybody needs to, to be looking out for uh, how this impacts their neighbor and uh, and do as little damage as possible, but it's a it's a it's a tough tough issue. Yeah, for sure. Um, I saw that the letter that that Roxanne sent was ask, actually asking for the EPA to cancel the dicamba registration. So it seems like that is what could happen at a national level. So what happened was the EPA canceled the registration for dicamba. Uh, after a variety of incidents and reports and hearings. Uh, and this was, and I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting my timeline here, but this was in 21, 20 or 21. Eight months later, and this would have been like in February or March, and eight months later, uh, the Biden administration reinstituted. So typically these registrations are good for five years, uh, these, these uh, herbicide registrations uh, with EPA. And Dicamba had gone through two sets of two-year registrations because there had been so much controversy and so many questions about it. Uh, and it had gotten renewed in, 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 from 16 to 18, gotten renewed again for two more years in 18. And then in 20, it got canceled. Uh, there was a lawsuit out of the Ninth Circuit. Uh, and then EPA canceled it. And then, I want to say it's eight months later, 
they uh, the the new EPA and the Biden administration renewed it for a full five years, which is the typical length of time for these registrations. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's part of what uh, uh, Roxanne Meyer's uh, uh, letter was in reference to. Uh, it is still currently under review. Um, the, uh, the, the problem at both the EPA level and at the Texas level, and this is, uh, and this is not just with this product, but this is, this is, and this is nationwide, uh, they base their uh, questioning of the registration on these products on complaints. And there is a hesitancy, again, both at the federal level and at the state level, in complaining. And one study suggests, and I think this is viable, is that why would you want to, and, and you're not likely, I mean, because the people that you're complaining about, that you're filing these complaints, are oftentimes your neighbors. Sometimes they're your own family. And so the, these incidences are vastly underreported. And so when, when we bring it up to the Texas Department of Agriculture, they look at their complaint process and say, Kyle, we don't, we've, we've had three complaints in the last two years. That, that, you know, so obviously it's not a problem. And so because we don't have complaints, uh, at the federal level or the state level, it makes it really, really difficult uh, to get any actionable uh, anything anything actionable from a regulatory standpoint because the the, the basis just isn't there. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. now we can come up with all kinds of anecdotal stories, uh, but unless there is a registered complaint, either both at the federal level or at the state level, these regulatory agencies just are very hesitant about. Uh, uh, any type of action, unfortunately, but that's just that's 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 just where it is. The reality yeah. of it. Well, meanwhile, there's the court case um, happening in Texas. So, um, will Twiga be satisfied if that court case settles with the payout for the growers, or will Twiga not be satisfied until Dicamba's off the market? Well, and that's a you know, and and the quick question is, I don't know. Um, obviously. Uh, we are uh, not. Uh, uh, I mean, we have. We are supportive of our growers and and the lawsuit. We do not have an active part of the lawsuit, um, at least not at this point. Uh, I, I think we've written, you know, some letters in support of the lawsuit, that type of thing. But no official, you know, no f- official stance in regards to the lawsuit. Um, I think from what I have been told, and I get very, you know, very limited information, obviously, uh, because we're not a party. Um, that uh, the attorneys uh, and the growers feel that they have a, a legitimate, you know, legitimate case. Um, uh, these things typically take a long time, uh, you know, once it goes through the appellate process and everything like that. Uh, so we'll we'll see what uh, we'll see what happens. One of the things, one of the benefits um, that I think will come out of this, as far as like from my point of view. From an advocacy point of view, is uh, the uh, the lawyers uh, on behalf of the growers went out and hired an independent scientific team to come in and do a thorough survey of damage, uh, which really hasn't been done. Uh, AgriLife did a did kind of a a very uh, preliminary uh, survey, uh, but it wasn't it wasn't specific enough uh, to determine exactly what had caused the damage. Uh, and so it was not as useful as it might have been otherwise. Uh, but this uh, apparently the survey that these uh, that these uh, that the lawsuit contracted for is very thorough, very scientific, and we're actually going to be able to get uh, the results of that. So I think that will be helpful long term, uh, so that we can kind of use that to to bolster our case. Um, the uh, uh, I I would hope that there would be some type of of uh, Resolution soon, uh, but I'm not holding my breath. And I mean, it just it, it, these these there's there's no reason from the I'll put on my chemical company hat if I was advocating for them. There's absolutely no reason for them to uh, to give in anytime soon. They they have lots and lots of money and lots and lots of attorneys, and and a lot of times on these lawsuits, it's a waiting game. And they just wait uh, as long as they possibly can. Uh, and the uh, the folks who are, who are doing the suing, in this case our growers, um, 
run into financial straits or, or just, you know, the businesses change or whatever. And, you know, and then they approach them for some type of deal or something like that. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's very, very difficult to come out on the, on the winning side when you're fighting something as big as, as these multinational companies. Um, but I mean, you know, stranger things have happened. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. We hope it. Uh, uh, we hope it, it ends well for for our growers. Um, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if if you and I could have the same conversation next year and not know much more than what we know now. But like I said, if nothing else, we will get some information. I think that'll be helpful to us in the long yeah, run. That's great. I want to talk about the budget surplus. Texas apparently has a large budget surplus. I'm going to talk about Texas wine marketing. And I want to talk about the statistic that I've seen for many years, which is that uh, the wine industry has a $13.1 billion economic impact in the state. A, I'd love to see an updated number for that um, economic impact. But is there any chance that Texas wine is going to get a massive cash infusion to do a lot of um, marketing or other types of um, promotion or activities around uh, the promotion of Texas wine. I know a lot of states have, it seems like a really robust program, uh, um, website and studies and um, all kinds of passport programs and so forth. And I would love to see some more money directed towards Texas wine marketing. You and me both. So first off, um, most of that money uh, and, and you can think about, uh, especially Oregon and, and Washington State, uh, California to a lesser degree, but certainly Oregon and Washington State, and, and New York to a lesser degree, too. Most of that money uh, comes off, uh, certainly in Washington, Oregon, comes off of what's referred to as a checkoff program, and which is a, a, a very, very typical agriculture self-imposed tax. So... Uh, most, uh, if you think about most of your, your major agriculture crops, uh, cotton, soybeans, corn, uh, beef, uh, pigs, chickens, um, these, uh, these industries uh, approach their governmental entities and, and they ask them to form a taxing unit that the, that the industry oversees, but it's run through the state so that there's no shenanigans. Uh, where the industry pays into uh, a fund, uh, a, a, and it's so much, you know, it's so much per pound, or, or so much per acre, or so much per whatever unit of measure. That money is accumulated. It's a self-imposed tax. That money is accumulated, and then the industry decides how that money uh, should be used, and whether it should be used in marketing or research or some combination of both. And you know, you think back to about uh, you know beef. What it's what's for dinner, or uh, 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 got milk. You know, and you think about those programs, those ad programs. Well, those were all industry programs that the industry initiated and paid for, typically through a checkoff program. And uh, the only state that I know that has actually contributed state dollars, actual state tax dollars, into a, uh, a wine, a viticulture and enology program is New York State. Uh, and they did, I'm going to say it's 2019, I haven't looked at 2020. 2019, they contributed just under a million dollars uh, to their uh, viticulture program. Uh, and I think it went to New York State or it was one of the universities that's out there close to the Finger Lakes out in that area. Um, so that's where a lot of that money comes from. Uh, California is kind of a different animal. Uh, it's almost all industry uh, generated, but but obviously the California industry is is not even apples to oranges. It's it's orchards to nothing compared. To, uh, it's 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 different 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 magnitude. Um, so uh, so that in answer to your question, yeah, the, the state's going to have an amazing surplus. Um, one of the things that happened after COVID is that uh, the federal government started sending everybody money. So they sent you money, they sent me money, uh, they sent the state money, and then they kept sending more money. And what we were supposed to do with that money is spend it, which a lot of us did. We bought stuff. Stuff we needed, eh, stuff we probably didn't need, but we bought stuff. All that generated sales tax, uh, which the state happily added to their coffers. Uh, the comptroller uh, made an announcement the other day, 
uh, gosh, other day, so I think it was in mid-July, uh, that uh, the budget surplus at the time he was predicting was going to be about $40 billion with a B. So our budget is about $122 billion. So a third of our budget is going to be surplus. As long as I've been doing this, the biggest surplus I have ever heard was around $5 billion. That was probably in the last eight or nine years. So this is completely unprecedented. Um, between now and January, when everything kind of kicks off, um, my guess is uh, it'll, it'll be more than $40 billion, or probably closer to $50 billion because we're still spending money. So what happens with that? Well, as you can imagine, everybody's got their hand out, including sure. us. And uh, they'll, uh, they, they have, uh, now there are some things that they should be spending money on um, that they've never spent money on in the past or haven't spent enough money on in the past, whether it's retired teachers or uh, you know, more funding for education to lower our property taxes, um, roads, uh, infrastructure. You know, everybody's talking about the electric grid. We're in the middle of a drought. The state doesn't really pay for anything for water, uh, so maybe they should do something like that. So, I mean, there's lots and lots of good ideas out there, and and many of them make sense. You know, we have a uh, we've got several uh, state uh, entities that are not uh, that are they're underfunded, and not doing their job, and we read about it in the paper every day. And so uh, this should be an opportunity to correctly fund those things. Of course, the problem is it's a one-time deal. This, this money's not going to be there next, next time. So you have to be careful because like any drug, uh, you can become addicted to spending money. And then suddenly when you have a withdrawal, it's very, yeah. very painful. And so, uh, you know, my suggestion, if anybody was listening to me, is you find things uh, that are, uh, you know, are, are a permanent uh, uh, solution or permanent addition to 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 the state, not one-time deals, but but like I said, infrastructure. You know, if you need to build more roads, then put a road in. That helps everybody. If you need to transport water, then put water pipes in. That helps everybody. And, and it's a one-time deal. You know, it's 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 something that uh, that benefits us for the long haul. Um, but I'm not a decision maker, and so we'll just have to wait and see. Having said all that, I do think it is an opportunity. Um, to uh, and we have and we'll continue and we're we're working with uh, University of, of Texas Texas A and M and Texas Tech University to come up with a proposal where the three universities come together and form the Texas Grape and Wine Institute, uh, which would be an entity uh, kind of a memorandum of understanding between the universities uh, where they could focus on research both in uh, grape growing and in winemaking. And uh, we're going to try to get some money sent to those to that entity that these three institutions could then share and uh, enhance our uh, our research on behalf of the industry. Um, it's uh, it's pretty exciting, really interesting. Um, these three universities, A and M and and UT, work together a lot on stuff. Uh, people find that odd because it's A and M and UT, but. Uh, this is different because we've gotten tech involved as well. Obviously, that's where a lot of the grapes are growing up in up in tech's general mm-hmm. vicinity, and so tech is involved, and, and so that makes this really unique. Uh, I think it's I'm knocking knock on wood here. I think it's going to appeal to a lot of uh, members, elected officials, um, and so I'm very hopeful that we'll get something um, that is meaningful uh, as far as research dollars. Uh, that will go to this uh, this new entity, um, and that the universities can use to uh, you know to further the industry. Uh, but it's uh, it's it's pretty it's it's interesting stuff. It's very exciting. So what what do you think I haven't asked you about that is going to be um, important for Twiga and the industry in the next you know eighteen months that you want to be sure and talk about? I think. Uh, well, I'll, I'll just I'll just rattle off, and, and I talked a little bit about this when we were talking earlier. Um, so, uh, in my career, I've worked for a number of trade associations, and and, and trade associations typically are uh, you know a, a group of like interests who band together uh, to to further the benefit uh, the interests of, of the industry as a whole. And trade associations 
they're certainly not perfect, uh, but I think they serve a vital interest. Uh, it's much easier uh, than every single, especially in a regulated industry. Alcohol is the most regulated industry uh, out there, and and and, you know, and you've heard me speak before. It's it's the only industry that required two amendments to the United States Constitution to deal with. That's that's how controversial alcohol is. We still have to have an election so that you can even consume and and, and buy and sell alcohol, and uh, and so it is a it is a unique product uh, that has a, a unique set of laws. And uh, if you're not if you're in the industry and you're not uh, aware or or participating in making sure your industry continues to be viable, then you are uh, you know you're you're doing yourself a disservice, uh, and uh, you are you know living off the the largesse of, of of your neighbors who are also in the industry, and so I I think it's really important. And I've worked for a lot of different trade associations, and, and, and the wine industry is no different. But I think it's really important uh, that uh, if you're in the industry, that you participate in the trade association. If you're happy with what's going on, then then buy in and participate. If you're unhappy, then this is the only way you get to change it, is, is through the trade association. Uh, elected officials are used to dealing with trade associations and people like myself. Uh, it's obviously much easier to have one meeting with me than it is to have 50 meetings with 50 different people talking about 50 different things. And so they work. Uh, uh, again, it's not perfect, but it's a good system, and uh, I would encourage anybody in the industry, and we've got lots and lots of new people in the industry, they may not even know that there is a Texas Wine and Grape Growers, and and so I, I certainly understand that. Uh, you know, Twiga offers a lot of benefits to its members. Uh, the cost of uh, participating is very minimal. Um, and so it's a it's a good organization and well worth uh, your time and effort to uh, you know to participate in. I'm reading between the lines a little bit here, but I'm guessing that some of the topics that have come up in the past, particularly around labeling, have um, created some tension in, in the organization so much that people have left and have not rejoined Twiga. Is that? Is yeah, that good... I mean, I think that's fair. Uh, it, it probably would be smaller than you think, but clearly. Sometimes it's 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 a vocal minority, uh, and 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 that's certainly uh, af, uh, during the label fight. Uh, there were people who, although some of them were still Twiga members, um, but there were people who uh, were on one side uh, against the association, were unhappy that the association didn't agree with them, and so they 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 stopped uh, their membership. COVID impacted obviously a lot of folks, and they just. Just didn't couldn't afford to you know to renew their membership, so that impacted a lot of people too. Um, but it's uh, uh, you know I mean we all have uh, arguments within our family, and you just have to get over that and move on. And uh, and it's the uh, it, to me it's the greater good. Um, things worked out, and uh, it uh, but but taking your ball and going home is never the right answer. And, and in this industry, it, uh, it is such a small uh, industry that is, uh, we've got plenty of enemies on the outside. There, there are plenty of folks who don't want to see us be successful. Uh, we don't need, so, so we need to, you know, put up with our disagreements and, and, and work on the stuff that we can agree on uh, and focus on those things instead of the things that we can't agree on. And so that's that's always my encouragement uh, to, uh, to to folks. And and believe me, you, you can't change it from the outside. If you want to, if you're not happy with the management, then get inside and fight like hell and 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 work to change it from the inside. That's that's the way to do it. I want to give you a couple minutes to talk about the Vine Roots program, which I heard you talk about at the Twiga conference. So Vine Roots, uh, in, in a previous life, I did a lot of campaign work and developed grassroots programs. Um, and I approached Twiga uh, because we have grown to such a, a significant size, the industry has. Uh, we're, we're easily the largest or could be the largest grassroots alcohol grassroots uh, uh, entity in the state. I mean, we, we certainly, the wholesalers are nowhere near our size and, and the, no one else is either. 
And so let's make use of that and let's put together a, a real grassroots program. So uh, I got with John Matthews, who, who uh, uh, John uh, is on the board and, and uh, also uh, ha, you know, has a winery and, and is very familiar with grassroots work uh, through his work with North Texas, uh, put together, a, a, drafted a, a grassroots program uh, and uh, we broke it up into uh, segments. Uh, action packs is what we call uh, we call it. The whole thing's I don't know 55, 56 pages long. But the action packs I think the longest one I think is four pages long, four or five pages long. But it's a it's a how to how to become involved. Um, everything that we do in the industry is regulated at the state, federal, uh, and sometimes county and even city level, uh, depending on what you where you are and what you're doing. And if you're not involved locally politically. Uh, then you're at a disadvantage. And, you know, one of the reasons people get in this business is is they like to have, obviously, they like to have people come to their house and drink wine. That's that's why we, one of the reasons we do this. And this is no different. This is just make sure that some of those people are your decision makers so they get to know you, get to know your business, who you are, what you're doing, how many people you're employing, the tax dollars that you're, that you're paying in, the salaries that you're paying, the benefits that you're putting out. Uh, and that's and that's really all it is. This is just a how to um, go through the uh, uh, go through the different segments of the Vine Roots program, and and it'll it'll teach you exactly how to get involved and what's uh, what to do once you are involved. And and it's a uh, it's it's been it was a lot of fun putting together, and and I've gotten really good responses. It's exciting to hear people who are making use of it. You can you can download the entire program on the Twiggle website. Uh, or you can download just bits and pieces of it uh, uh, that are of interest to you right away. But it's uh, it's well worth your time. Um, I, I know folks uh, who are making use of it at the local level, uh, how to do a fundraiser for your local city council person or a county commissioner or something like that, uh, how to host an event. Uh, and, and it's all there, and it all... Uh, it, it all adds up, and it uh, it helps make your business. Uh, it helps ensure your business remains viable over the long term. But it's uh, it's it, it's uh, it's well worth a look at, and you can, like I said, you can find it on the Twigger website. I thought it was really well done. I um, I think that in a time when things seem so divisive, that coming together over a glass of wine and looking at um, a winery and talking about technology and jobs and, you know, all those things can just be really positive. It's, it's something we all can agree on. Thanks for sharing, Kyle. Next up, a gold star for podcast listeners. Here's another gold star for podcast listeners. I heard a nice compliment about listeners of this podcast from Miguel Laquona of Cibonet Cellars. He recently commented on Instagram, when we have guests visiting who reference this podcaster, that's me, invariably they are true enthusiast collectors and consumers of wine and wine writing. He also said that this podcast provides some of the most interesting coverage of the Texas wine industry and that the format allows ample time to delve more deeply into each story. So nice. Hey, if you're inspired to visit a winery or buy a wine based on something you've heard here, please let me know or let the winery know. It's like a little pat on the back when I hear these things. Well, I made it out to the Texas High Plains just recently. I took a road trip with my good friend, Michelle Williams, who's a wine writer for Forbes, among other publications. She writes a little bit about Texas wine, but really covers the entire world of wine. And we really had the best time checking out vineyards and meeting up with winemakers. We learned a ton, and it was a great time to be in the vineyard, so close to harvest time in a difficult year, a drought year. We saw some great looking fruit, though, and we asked about a million questions, and everyone that we met with was very generous with their time and their knowledge. And here are just a couple of highlights. We had the vineyard tour from Dr. VJ Reddy at Reddy Vineyards. We popped corks with Reddy's winemaker, Lude. We tasted some stunners with Jason Santani at Yano. Then we listened while Kim McPherson held court on the state of the Texas wine industry in the world. We got schooled in vineyard management and harvester mechanics by Daniel Pate of Apical, Texas. That took place in Neil Newsom's vineyard. We kicked back at a happy hour with Nikki Nara Davis and Greg Davis out at Nara Vineyard. And last but certainly not least, we had the best time hanging out with the women of Farmhouse Vineyards. Of course, I mean the co-owners, Katie Jane Seaton and Tracy Ferguson, but also the women who work in the vineyards. 
Farmhouse has an all-women vineyard team, and they live up to their name, the Badasses. We shared some stories and laughs with these women and saw how valuable their contributions are to keeping everything moving forward at Farmhouse, both in the vineyards and with the business in general. We got to tour the new farmhouse space called the Armory, which is already a great meeting spot for the community. So very special thanks to Farmhouse Vineyards for sharing some real stories behind what it means to be a farmer's wife and what you admire in the winemakers you work with. Thanks for sharing your top secret future wine release and for trusting us overnight in your adorably outfitted tasting room at White House Parker. Until next time, Texas High Plains, I'm crossing my fingers that y'all get rain, a raise, and a post-harvest vacation. Please send me your feedback, comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes. You can email me at texaswinepod at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Google Voice took away my voicemail number, but you can still send me a voice memo. Just email it to me at texaswinepod at gmail.com, and maybe I'll share your question or comment on the next show. Show notes and more can be found at thisistexaswine.com. Thanks to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. Visit TXWineLover.com to help plan your next Texas winery visit. I'll be back in two weeks revisiting a popular topic from one of the early podcasts. I'll also have information on the 2022 harvest and will announce an exciting project I've been working on with the State Fair of Texas. Cheers, y'all.